It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Good morning. And the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. Our guest today, David Hemingway, is the director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center and the Harvard Youth Violence Prevention Center. He's been working on the problem of gun violence as a public health issue, which is the same approach Ralph took with auto safety. And it's not surprising because Professor Hemingway used to work with Ralph. When it came to car accidents, the problem was always framed as the nut behind the wheel. Ralph approached it as an engineering problem. How do you make the cars less dangerous? Professor Hemingway estimates that well over 300 citizens are shot every day in the United States, with likely 110 to 120 of them dying. 60% of those deaths are suicides. In a country that's bristling with firearms and with efforts to reduce the number of guns hamstrung by the NRA and distorted interpretations of the Second Amendment, Professor Hemingway asked the question, how can we learn to live with guns right now without dying from them? Our Substack and podcast subscribers get a bonus segment every week in case you haven't heard with Francesco DeSantis, who digs out the stories that don't get a lot of play in the mainstream press. Well, today, Francesco is going primetime with three news stories you may not have heard and Ralph's commentary. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our indefatigable corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, can we make guns safer with the same approach Ralph used to make automobiles safer? Feldo? David Hemingway is an economist, professor of health policy at Harvard University and director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center and the Harvard Youth Violence Prevention Center. He is a former Nader's Raider, and he is the author of Private Guns, Public Health, and While We Were Sleeping, Success Stories in Injury and Violence Prevention. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, David Hemingway. Thank you. Welcome indeed, David. You were a graduate student working with us about a half century ago, and you've continued this work with many publications and building the injury prevention group at the Harvard School of Public Health. You've been a leading supporter of what's called the public health approach to combating gun violence and gun source suicides. Tell us what that entails. That is a way to confirm the work you've done that quite apart from law enforcement and gun safety and all that, there are a lot of ways to reduce the casualty tolls, right? That's exactly right. I think the public health approach, the key is that it's broadening. It says, listen, once we decide as a society this is a big problem, something's a big problem, there are so many things we can do and there are so many entities that can help. And there's just so many examples that I try to give of all the different things the government can do all the different things that different organizations from the faith community to universities to standard writing organizations to you name it can do. And it's just sort of trying to make example after example and just saying that if you're in, say, a hospital, that it's not just caring for people, but now finally the hospitals are saying, oh, somebody comes is shot and they come in. This is the time when we can actually prevent them from going out and shooting somebody else or getting shot again. And so I would say the key about public health is what we're trying to do is prevent, 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 prevent. And too often in the United States, what we try to do is blame. 
and often blaming, all it does is say, oh, I don't have to do anything. It's somebody else's fault. I would say the key, if you wanted sort of one word description for me of the public health approach, it's let's make it easy for people to stay healthy and difficult for them to get sick and injured. Give some of the many examples on prevention in recent decades that have worked and why haven't they spread more widely? So, you know, what we know is you are the key. One of the big examples we often get is from motor vehicles. Whereas the motor vehicle manufacturers in the 1940s and 50s really trying to push that, it's all the driver's fault. And in some sense, they're correct. And if you're looking at fault, because you can say if drivers drove perfectly, if drivers never made mistakes, they never got tired, they never got angry, they were never distracted, they never broke the law, there'd be almost no crashes. And if they never broke the law, if they never drove drunk or sped, there'd almost there'd be very few fatalities. But as you were able to show, and public health was pushing all the time, is that by changing the motor vehicle, by improving the roads, by improving the emergency medical system, you could reduce motor vehicle deaths by something like 90% over a 60, 70 year period per mile driven without really improving drivers at all. You want to try to improve drivers, but that doesn't have to be the focus. What typically all the successes in public health indicate is that the most effective and cost-effective way of reducing injuries is to go upstream and try to make it so that the world's sort of safer. One of the big examples of like the public health approach was in anesthesia, anesthesiology. Whereas that was, people were dying so often when they're under anesthesia that the malpractice premiums were the highest for that discipline of any in the world, of any other discipline. And so specialty and what really Harvard helped to change is they created a system where it was hard for physicians to make mistakes. And when they started to make mistakes, basically bells and whistles would start ringing and they'd stop. And so instead of the old way of let's blame this doctor, let's blame this nurse, and then we solve the problem because you haven't. Let's make it so that it's really easy to stay healthy. So in the obesity, I do a little work about obesity and what the public health approach says. You want people not to be obese, try to make it so people can get really healthy food, nutritious food easily, make it hard to harder to get junk food, make it really easy to get really healthy activities, really healthy exercise, make it harder to be a couch potato. And in the United States for the last 40 years, we've done just the opposite. And not surprisingly, we have a huge obesity problem. You could blame people, oh, you eat too much, or you could just solve the problem by changing the environment, changing the incentives, changing how easy it is to do things. That's a lot of the work you've done on pricing, using pricing, differentiation, price, bad things higher, and price, good things or safer things lower. Let's talk about reducing gun violence. I guess half of the violent fatalities are suicides and half are crime. Is that well, roughly you know, is the that, breakdown? It's probably now it's probably now about 60% are suicides. Suicides are always higher than homicides and gun suicides are always higher than gun homicides. Let's start with what you call a public health approach to help reduce gun suicides. Yeah. And the overwhelming evidence of what happens when guns are in the homes right? regarding suicide. Yeah, so I think the evidence right now is so strong that a gun in the home increases the risk of suicides. I think it's stronger than it, the evidence was in the 60s when C. Everett Koop said that 
cigarettes, yes, it really causes cancer. And there have been scores and scores of studies showing that when the gun is in the house, the people in the home, the gun owner, the gun owner's spouse, the gun owner's children are something like three times more likely to die in a suicide than if there's no gun in the house. And people don't understand this, but the evidence is there in terms of cohort studies following tens of millions of people over time in California in terms of longitudinal case control studies, looking at here are lots of people who have died in suicide. Here are people who look like them in most ways and they didn't die of suicide. What's the difference? And the difference is the people who died of suicide had a gun in the house and typically used it. The case fatality rate for guns is something like 90%. If you attempt suicide with a gun, you're almost certain to die. The case fatality rate for all the other methods is about 7%. People probably have a hunch why, but just explain why. Why is that the case? You know, most people, it's not like they've carefully planned the suicide. It's just, you know, things are going bad and something just snaps. They get arrested. They get a divorce. They go get whatever. And they get really depressed. And for this time period, there's a really chance that they can attempt suicide. And if there's a gun around, they can use the gun and then they're dead. And if there's no gun around, what can they do? Well, they can take 100 pills, but then we can save them. They can cut themselves, but then we can save them. There's about 10% of people who have tried to kill themselves with a gun, shot themselves in the head or the heart and actually lived. And virtually all of them are so happy that they lived. We follow people who have attempted suicide in the most lethal ways possible and were able to survive somehow. And they expected to die, but they didn't. And then 20 years later, they still haven't died in suicide because they haven't attempted suicide. We're talking with David Hemingway, professor of health policy. He's the director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center and a prolific author. And he is about to tell us something quite interesting. Listeners have heard endless discussions about the controversy regarding regulating guns, controlling guns, controlling ammunition, safety locks, the opposition of the NRA and supporters background checks that are supported by many members of the NRA still not adequate because of the more insistent members not wanting background checks and on and on. Let's look at it from an interesting viewpoint here. We have some listeners in Canada. Canada has a lot of guns. The U.S. has a lot of gun ownership. Canadians like to hunt. There are people in the United States that like to hunt. We're neighbors. Tell us the difference in the way the laws are operating in Canada compared to the U.S. and what the difference is in terms of casualty tolls. So if you look not only at Canada, if you look at any of the other 30-plus high-income countries, everyone, it's not like you have to look at Canada or Australia or New Zealand or Japan or Korea or France or Sweden, they all have fewer guns, but particularly it's not that they have no guns, it's that they don't have as nearly as many handguns and they don't have these military style weapons that we allow. And secondly, the most important thing is they have strong regulations and we don't. Almost all of them have licensing of all gun owners, just like we have licensing of car drivers and they have registration of guns, just like we have registration of automobiles and they have much lower rates of firearm problems. So we did a study recently looking at U.S. firearm homicide rate compared to the all the other high-income countries. And in the United States, 
you have a higher chance that you will die in a gun homicide from guns than you do in any of these other countries. And it's not on average like 50% higher or twice as high or five times as high or 10 times as high. It's 25 times higher. There's so much blaming in this area. And so let's look at five to 14-year-olds who are K through eight. It's hard to blame them when they get shot and killed. In the United States, a child in the United States compared to children in Italy or Germany or any of these other high-income countries has 29 times higher chance that they will end up at the end of the year dead from a firearm. And I teach in a public health school with lots of international students, and they everybody knows this outside the United States. They just cannot understand why we allow this to happen. Adults in no other country, no other high-income country will allow this to happen, and we do. We've done studies of high school kids throughout the United States, and we ask them, have you carried a gun? And too many say yes. And we say, why have you carried a gun illegally? And they say, because we're afraid. Why are you afraid? Because other kids have guns. And then we say, what kind of world do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a world like the United States where it's easy to get guns, where it's difficult to get guns, or where it's almost impossible to get guns if you are 15 years old? And the overwhelming majority say we want to live in a world where it's almost impossible for teens like us to have guns. And even the majority of these boys who have illegally carried guns say they would like to live in a world where it's impossible for them and their other teenagers in their community to get guns. Yeah, but David, now it's easier than ever to get Mm -hmm. guns because they can make them. Tell us about the ghost gun situation. Yeah. So ghost guns. So these are what was called privately manufactured firearms. And I want to talk about two types of ghost guns. One is these plastic downloadable 3D guns. But the first I want to talk about is the more common and more, in a sense, in the short run, more dangerous guns. Basically, these are do-it-yourself homemade guns. Technical change has made it so it's much less expensive to get the parts to put together these guns. Online, you can get all these guns in kits. The guns don't cost that much to make. They can be made now in less than an, an hour if you're at all competent. And if you make more guns, you can make them faster and faster and faster. The key thing about these guns, why people want these guns, is one, because they're not produced by a licensed manufacturer right now, there are no serial number. There's no serial number on these guns, which is why they're called ghost guns. They are untraceable. Who wants an untraceable gun? Ha. The second thing is you don't need to go through a background check. So you have a gun which you can make and make it. And so in an hour, make a Glock 19, which is a can't be distinguished from other Glock 19s looking at it and really isn't as effective as a Glock 19. You have a Glock 19, you didn't have to have a background check and the gun is untraceable. You can have an AR-15, you can make it. There's online, it teaches you how to do this. There's help online on how to do this. You can get an AK-40, make an AK-47. And the problem is these ghost guns are increasingly being used by people like who would want these guns? Convicted felons, drug dealers, gun traffickers, gangs, and some adolescents. And adolescents, yeah. ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms said that police recovered in 2019 10,000 ghost guns and that it's been increasing incredibly rapidly. These are tailor-made for the criminal market. The crazy people who tried to kidnap the Michigan governor, Gretchen Whitmer, they had these ghost guns. And so this is like an enormous problem. 
And it's an enormous problem because it's an increasing problem unless we figure out how to do something about that. And again, the other countries are going to make, do something about this because they're going to say, these are guns. If you got to buy a kit, you have a gun and you're going to, the only way you can get the gun is to go to a licensed dealer and they will do a background check and they'll make sure that the guns are have a serial number and are traceable. But we don't quite do that yet, or at least the ATF is trying to make it so they're going to be traceable, but it's in the courts and God knows what's going to happen with the current court system. Then there are the plastic guns, which are a type of ghost gun. They are downloadable guns, they're called. They're 3D guns. All you need is a 3D printer, some plastic printing materials, and the computer code about how to make this. And the big problem with that is that they are largely undetectable by metal detectors. At least they're very, very hard to detect. And we have all these metal detectors to try to prevent guns from going into the wrong places. And these are going to be able to get through. It's going to make it really, really dangerous. One of the things, though, is that these don't look like real guns. You know, it's not like you see a plastic gun. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a Glock 19. No, it's it's a this plastic gun. And it's not nearly as reliable as a, as a regular gun. You're not going to use it over and over and over and over again. You want to use it. If you want to shoot somebody, you got to get close to them and, sh- and use it one or two times. And then it may not be working at all. It's much, much worse in terms of reliability and quality than the old Saturday night specials. But something has to be done and it has to be done quickly. You can't sort of wait and wait like we have done with climate change. It makes it harder and harder and harder. It's right now much more of a problem in states which have strong laws and low gun deaths. So in the United States, we have, they're mostly the blue and the red states, not 100%, but very, very close. You have the red states with lots of guns and weak laws and lots and lots and lots of gun deaths. And you have the blue states with stronger laws and fewer guns and much lower gun deaths. So I live in Massachusetts. We have strong laws. We have many fewer gun deaths, not than the rest of the developed world, but compared to the other states in the United States. And where do criminals get their guns? They don't get them in Massachusetts. They get them from the states which have weak laws and lots of guns. But because just by making it harder for criminals to get those guns, we have fewer criminals using those guns. Just that's a, the fundamental law of economics and of psychology is if you don't want people to do something, make it harder. You want people to do more, make it easier. David, let's get back to Canada. Tell us what the Canadian system is regarding handguns and rifles compared to the U.S. And why gun owners in Canada, and there are a lot of them, have respected the system. And in the United States, there's heavy resistance. Right. Well, there are always gun owners in Canada who are like some NRA members. But in Canada, one of the key things, I think, from my point of view, is it's they have not only universal background checks, but real background checks. The background checks look sort of more like FBI background checks than the United States. We have these background checks. So if you buy a gun initially, as long as it's not a ghost gun, but if you get a gun initially in the United States, new guns, virtually everyone was supposed to go through a licensed dealer in which you would have a background check. And the background check basically says, yes, no, we'll send your data in to Nick system. And did you are you on this list of people who are convicted felon or something else? But basically, the list is mostly convicted felons. And the answer is yes, that's fine. In Canada, they want to know things about you. The, the, the police come to your house all the time for domestic violence. They want to know. They typically are required to ask your spouse and your ex-spouse about you. Can they? You need two people to testify for you that you are a 
good citizen, a quota good guy, as opposed to somebody who has anger problems. And it's very hard to get handguns. It's easy to get these long guns to go hunting and to go target shooting. But because it's much more strongly regulated, the way criminals in Canada get their guns, how do they get them? They get them from the United States. The United States is a terrible neighbor to other countries. Not only are we allowing ourselves to kill each other, but how do Mexican criminals get their guns? They get them from the United States. We had a research assistant from Jamaica, and he discovered that something like 85% of guns used in Jamaican crime came from three counties in Florida. And so it's not hard to do. And it's not just, oh, let's look at Canada. It's if we had the gun laws of any other high-income country, any other high-income countries, we had the gun laws of Israel or Switzerland, if we had those gun laws, if we had the gun laws of Italy or Korea, we would do so much better. The, the evidence is inc- overwhelming that having stronger gun laws it is really helpful. Does Canada have registration, licensing, uh, registra- storage requirements yes. in the home? Yes. yes. Canada has registration of handguns. They had registration of long guns for a while, and that was, I think that died out because it's the handguns that are the real, in terms of crime, are the real, real problem. And I'm trying to think about, there's so many different countries, I'm trying to remember if Canada has, I think they have certain things about training requirements, which we don't. I mean, in the United States, you don't need to be trained to get a gun. In most states now, you don't need, all you need to do is have passed a background check and you're allowed to carry guns. In public, you're allowed to carry open carry, concealed carry. They have, of course, like in Massachusetts, you have to get a license to carry a gun, a concealed gun. What about storage requirements in the home to keep it away, yeah, keep think, guns away from I, kids I, I, in the house? Yeah, I'm, trying, I'm trying to remember Canada's requirements. I know we have storage requirements in Massachusetts, but I don't, there's too many countries, Ralph, that, that I get mixed up about. Well, what are the storage requirements in Massachusetts? It just says that if, when you store your gun, you have to store it so that it can't be accessed by anybody else. It has to be stored, unloaded, and locked. That's what because, the, NRA uh, used, the, the NRA used to teach. Always that all guns should be stored, unloaded, and locked up with the ammunition kept separately. Yeah, because there are several thousand deaths a year when seven, eight, ten-year-old kids get it out of their parents' closet and misfire. It's horrible scenes that are reported so often in the media. If people want to know more about these success stories that we don't have time to cover, what's the website? So they should just go into Amazon, and it's, and it's under my name, Hemingway, H-E-M-E-N-W-A-Y, and it's called While We Were Sleeping. And it's about injury and violence prevention. So it's While We Were Sleeping. And I think it's like 20-some dollars on Amazon. Steve, David, Hannah, why don't you pitch in here? Professor Hemingway, say I'm a congressperson, and I know you're an expert on gun safety, And I want to take your approach and I call you into my office. And this is by way of summary of what we've talked about already. I want you to bullet point for me all of the things that we I can put into this bill one by one in ascending order of importance that won't get me in trouble with Second Amendment absolutists. Okay. well, everything will get you in trouble with the Second Amendment absolutists. But what I try to convince them is not here are the particular regulatory prohibitions that you should do, which you could find from, you know, Brady or every town. 
But here are some of the things the government can do that it's not doing very well. One is data. Government is collects good data. What we know, one of the reasons why there's such a success story in motor vehicles throughout the world is because we had good data. We know what was going on. We finally have the National Violent Death Reporting System, but we don't have a good data system for non-fatals. We don't have a good data system, even in areas where we have good data or could have good data, such as tracing data. We're not allowed, researchers aren't allowed to look at the tracing data of the police. It's like, what kind of world is that? We need, one of the things in, in the book, While We Were Sleeping, all the successes, not only data matter, but research mattered using that data. And for 25 years in the United States, basically the federal government did no research in this incredibly important public health problem. Finally, we're doing a little research, but you really want to have a lot more funding of researchers. Researchers go where the money is. I was at, during the age crisis. I was at Harvard and there was no money for age research in the beginning and nobody was doing age research. And suddenly there was money and everybody was doing it. And we learned so much about AIDS and there's a big reason why AIDS is not such a problem anymore. We really need lots more money for research to figure out what is happening, what works, what could work. Again, just to give you a feeling about why this is so important. In the motor vehicle area, one of the things we learned, for example, years ago was that 16-year-olds who had a huge problem in terms of driving deaths. And so what, is, what can you do? Oh, ban all 16-year-olds? Or one of the things we learned from the research is that there were two periods where 16-year-olds were at the most risk, and that was at night and when other teenagers were in the car. And so... Michigan said, all right, we can let 16-year-olds drive, but not at night and not when other teenagers are in the car. And so they had what was called graduated driver's licensing. It reduced deaths by 30%, which is pretty significant. And so other states saw that, and we had data to show when the other states had passed these laws that they reduced deaths by about 20 to 40%. And so very quickly, all every state in the United States now has these graduated driver's license laws. David? So in New Mexico, Governor Grisham announced a 30-day public health order banning the issue of firearm permits. I, I think she suspended the right to carry guns in public for 30 days. And there's a county sheriff in New Mexico named John Allen who's refusing to enforce this. Why are the police so resistant to common sense gun control? So let me talk about the difference between sort of there's police and then there's like sheriffs. So there's urban police and then there's rural sheriffs. I mean, there's lots of other things, but those are two. The urban police are typically, typically the police chiefs are good about reasonable gun laws, but they're also really reasonable about public health. Finally, they're sort of understanding. You hear these police chiefs saying, we can't arrest our way out of the problem. We have to do more. We have to work with the community. We have to work with the faith community. We have to get these people who were ex-gang members. So we have to give them money to help work with the gangs to help reduce the problem. We have to do lots of things. And they're they're pretty good. But in the rural areas, they don't see sort of the the gang problem because there are many gangs and they're what they have the big problem with is intimate partner violence deaths. In both areas, interestingly, they don't quite understand is that what we've done studies on is where police are getting shot. And you can predict the best predictor of why some states, a lot of police get killed per cap per sworn officer compared to other states. What is the best predictor of saying this state, a lot of police will get killed compared to this other state, few police will get killed? And the answer is it's not crime. What is it? It's guns. States where there's lots of guns and weak gun laws, police get killed. 
And so not surprisingly, those are the same states where police are killing civilians. In the United States, we have, on average, a police officer in the United States compared to a police officer, this is all sworn officers, so sheriffs, and compared to police officers in Germany, a police officer in the United States is 30 times more likely to be murdered on the job. And a civilian in the United States compared to a civilian in Germany is 30 times more likely to be shot by a police officer and killed. And it's all to do with guns. And I think the problem, I think, is that guns have become part of the culture wars. And you sort of had the reds, reds and the blues. And instead of sort of standing back and saying, how can we work to solve these problems? It's this is, you know, my tribe likes the guns and your tribe hates guns, which is not true at all. But and we're going to stop anything that anybody wants to do to affect guns. And You've spoken about preventing gun violence in terms of harm reduction. Yeah. Can you explain harm reduction as a public health policy for listeners who might not be familiar and also explain how it can be applied to preventing gun deaths and sure. getting people to let go of guns as a culture war issue and, and accept it as, yeah. as an outcome? Right. So, so harm reduction has to do with, you're not trying to say, let's get rid of all cigarettes. You try to say, okay, people have the, the freedom if they want to buy cigarettes, they can, but to try to figure out ways to make it clear how dangerous cigarettes are, what alternatives are to cigarettes and so forth. One of the things like harm reduction, you're just trying to reduce the problem. So Kathy Barber in my group spends a lot of time with gunners, sort of sleeping with the enemy, if you will. She works with them about suicide. Now it turns out, as I mentioned, that if you are have a gun in your house, you're incredibly at risk for suicide. And the gunners never understood that. They always just thinking about, you know, gun safety and killing bad guys. So she went, and for example, among other things, she went and talked to gun carrying people who are the trainers in Utah, which is this red state, which is really the gun training capital of the, of the United States and the world. And she said to them, you know, you're doing, you're trying to do a good job reducing accidental gun death, but do you realize that for every accidental gun death in Utah, there are over 85 gun suicides, 85 to one? And they said, what? That's not right. And she said, raise your hand if you know someone who died accidentally from a firearm and a few hands go up. She says, raise your hand if you know someone who died in a gun suicide and every hand goes up because there are all these old white guys and they're at high, really high risk for suicide because if things go bad for them ever and they go through a bad patch, they have a gun and they know how to use it and they use it. And she said, can we do something about this? Can I help you create a module maybe to talk about the real problem about guns in Utah? And they said, sure, let's work on it. And they, she created this module and they love it. They love it. They think it's the best thing. And what it is, is basically the friends don't let friends drive drunk approach. It says if your friend is going through a bad patch, he is getting divorced, he's drinking, he's talking crazy. It should be your responsibility and he should know it's your responsibility to, and these are their words, babysit the gun for a while until things get better. He has a new girlfriend, he's out of the woods, he gets his gun back. Because so many of gun suicides are pretty spontaneous. It's just overwhelming how many are. And then they said, you know, we should train this. Everybody should get this training. And they said, how can we do this? And they said, we could get everyone, you know, try to explain this to everybody. But, you know, we know people in the, in the legislature in Utah, we'll make it mandatory. So in Utah, it's mandatory. If you teach training about concealed carry, you have to have a module about gun suicide. And that kind of thing 
is going to help because even though I mentioned the evidence is overwhelming, all the suicide experts in the United States finally understand now that the gun in the home increases the risk of suicide. The army understands it. The veteran administration understands it. The average person, only about you know less than 20% of people understand that. They think the gun is, oh, if you want to kill yourself, you will. And that's just, that's not what the evidence shows. The evidence is overwhelming. And so, We've been speaking with David Hemingway, professor of health policy and director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center at Harvard University. Before we end, for those of you who want to feel more optimistic about all these situations, the author of the book is While We Were Sleeping, Success Stories in Injury and Violence Prevention, describes more than 60 successes and over 30 heroes who have made the world safer. One last question. Are you finding more and more of your students interested in injury prevention? In other words, is there a growing core to carry on all over the country and the world? Because for many years, injury prevention was not at the top of the list of students who wanted to go into medicine or public health. That's right. What I can say is that there's been an incredible increase in people interested in gun violence research. It used to be that Five times a year, some, someone would I'd be asked by a publisher to review an article to see if it should get published or not and be a reviewer. Now, I would say at least once, once a week, I get asked. There are so many physicians now who really care, who really understand that this is something that is very preventable. I mean, a lot of areas you can say, oh, yes, we can prevent things. But here, all you have to look at any other country, any other high-income country and say, they did it. Why can't we do it? You can look at High income, you know, good states with strong laws versus states with weak laws. You can see, you can see the evidence is there. Some people can do it. Other people can't. We, there's a way to do it. It's not like, oh, my goodness, how are we ever going to figure out now, you know, to, to stop little kids from drowning? Now we have fences around pools. So that's a really good thing if we but there, you know, what other things can we do? And it's hard. But in the gun area, it's like we know we know things that will work. As one of a famous tort professor once said, better a guardrail on the highway than an ambulance in the valley below. Unfortunately, our time is up. We want to have you back, David, because there's so much more to talk about slips and falls, fire prevention, and other areas that you've worked on for so many decades and inspired so many students. Thank you, Professor David Hemingway. Thank you. We've been speaking with David Hemingway. We will link to his work at ralphnaderadiohour.com. Up next, Ralph has some comments about the child tax credit and Francesco DeSantis. And in case you haven't heard, we'll be coming up. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your corporate crime reporter morning minute for Friday, September 15, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. Food and Water Watch and 12 other groups last week sued Biden's Environmental Protection Agency over the agency's failure to regulate factory farm pollution under the Clean Water Act. The lawsuit follows EPA's denial last month of a 2017 petition calling on the EPA to initiate a rulemaking to overhaul its ineffective factory farm regulations. EPA elected instead to form a study group to make recommendations delaying action until at least 2025, that is, if the agency decides to act at all. The lawsuit calls on the Ninth Circuit to reject EPA's denial and require it to immediately reconsider key reforms proposed in the 2017 petition. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mulkyber.
Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman, Ralph, and Hannah. And before we get to uh, Francesco DeSantis and our In Case You Haven't Heard segment, Ralph, you have a news item that you wanted to bring to the light. Yeah, in Wednesday's Washington Post, Steve, there was a, an article and an editorial on the child tax credit. And remember, that was passed at the height of the pandemic, and it cut child poverty almost in half. It amounted to about $300 a month sent to 61 million children, regardless of their family's political background. And it was up for extension in January 2022, and the Republicans blocked it. And the Democrats never made it a major campaign issue in 2022 to their detriment. The issue has risen again. And the editorial in the Washington Post said, if we can extend this child tax credit, or if we can reimpose this child's tax credit in Congress, it will reverse what the recent data showed, which is child poverty doubled after the child tax credit was not renewed in January 2022. So something so simple as something that helps so many families, it increases consumer demand because the, the, most of this money spent on the necessities of life. That's what the studies have shown. And the uh, Republicans are blocking it in Congress and not paying a political price. And that's the story of the Democratic Party. They don't make the Republicans who are as cruel as any Republicans in history plus pay a price for opposing health and safety for workers, a restored inflation-adjusted minimum wage, which they're against, and paying attention to climate violence and getting more money domestically for public works repair in communities all over the country, and not simply ballooning the military budget, which is so wasteful. So it's important, I think, for our listeners, if they ever interact with their members of Congress, to say you have an easy way to cut child poverty almost in half. And that has a human face to it, as we know, all over the country, regardless, red states, blue states. Bring it to their attention, especially if you are in a Republican district. Yeah, it seems like an easy answer to what the far right Congress people, the Matt Gateses of the world, who are railing against more government spending that to point out that this is this is actually, you know, everything that you pointed out are the benefits of that. Yeah, it's uh, cruel, stupid, ignorant. These people should not be in Congress. They should be fired and replaced with people who put the interest of the American people ahead of the devouring interest of public budgets exhibited by corporate lobbyists swarming all over congressional offices as we speak. What do you say to Republicans who maintain these child subsidies make it harder for jobs to be filled, that Americans are staying home because of these earned income tax credits? Yeah, that's totally false. It's been shown to be such in study after study. Whether people go to work or not, I'm not relying on whether they get another $300 to support their meager family budget on behalf of their children. This is what the Republicans get away with. It's called, in a a euphemism, magical thinking. I call it ignorance blended with cruelty. Stand up. Now it's time for In Case You Haven't Heard, 
with Francesco DeSantis. A Princeton University study published at the end of August traces the effects of unconditional cash transfers on homelessness. Focusing on Vancouver, Canada, researchers gave homeless people $7,500 Canadian. Conforming to the results of previous studies, the subjects used this money to get into housing. Yet, what was remarkable about this study is it showed this program actually saved taxpayers' money overall by relieving $8,277 per subject by removing them from the shelter system. Just another example, Francesco, that justice saves money. Justice means prevention. Justice means tackling problems before they fester and get worse and create much more expense for the society and the human beings involved. It sounds like a very similar dynamic to what you just described about the child tax credit. Yes, and it's been proven again and again. Obviously, if we have technology to require cleaner air and less toxics in the air, you're going to have less respiratory ailments, less cancer, and less medical expense, and less family anguish, and fewer casualties. I mean, it's just simple historical fact. It is impeded by corporate power and greed. Stand up! From Axios, 15 senators have penned a letter to Secretary of State Anthony Blinken urging him to stop the planned admission of Israel into the visa waiver program. This program allows a country's citizens to travel within the United States for 90 days without a visa. Built into this program is a provision demanding U.S. citizens in a given country are treated equally, which is not the case for Palestinian Americans living in the West Bank. Israel claims that they are working to achieve compliance with this section of the law. However, this group of senators argue that, quote, there is no provision in law that provides that a visa waiver country can discriminate against certain groups of U.S. citizens for the first seven months of the program simply because a country claims they will treat all U.S. citizens equally for the last five months. A rare assertion of protection for American citizens in Israel and the West Bank by U.S. senators speaks for itself. Stand up. California Democrat Ro Khanna is making his pitch that President Biden should campaign on re-election on an anti-corruption platform, per the Huffington Post. Khanna, who previously chaired the Bernie Sanders campaign in California, has authored a five-point plan consisting of, quote, banning candidates for federal office from receiving donations from lobbyists or political action committees of any kind, banning members of Congress from trading stocks, limiting Supreme Court appointees to 18-year terms, imposing 12-year term limits on members of Congress, and requiring federal judges and Supreme Court justices to adhere to a new and more robust code of ethics, end quote. Beyond the hard policy, though, is a political point. Kana argues, quote, what we cannot allow to happen is for a former president, twice impeached and four times indicted, to position himself as the outsider in the race. All over the world, polls have shown that fighting against corruption is a winning electoral strategy. And the same is true in the United States. So I applaud Congressman Khanna. But I would also urge him to add another paragraph to his demand, and that is corporate corruption in our political economy. Stand up! On September 10th, Senator Richard Blumenthal sent a letter to the chair of the Federal Election Commission urging her to crack down on, quote, telemarketing calls and online scams that prey on Americans' goodwill and civic engagement, end quote, noting that a recent charity scam defrauded consumers of over $150 million, while a recent, quote, network of scam packs took in $140 million, end quote. 
Many speculate that Senator Blumenthal was spurred to act on this issue following the release of a documentary series on telemarketing scams focusing on the Civic Development Group, which raised vast sums for charities, which only received between 10 and 15% of that money. The Civic Development Group itself has been shut down by the FTC. A new piece in Insider covers the clash of conservative and liberal populist senators J.D. Vance of Ohio and John Fetterman of Pennsylvania. The two have been collaborating on rail safety legislation following the East Palestine derailment, and we have covered the degeneration of this legislation on the show before. Now, Vance is turning his attention to banning mask mandates, which Fetterman calls, quote, silly performance art, end quote, which is taking time and attention away from the stalled rail safety bill. Stand up. All right, Ralph, last week we did the Procrastination Equation Show with Professor Pierce Steele, and we got a lot of good comments. Do you want to dive into that mailbag? Yeah, there are comments and a bit of self-expressed satire as well. One person said, Airy Star, quote, I will put off watching the rest of this for later. I've been putting off mowing my lawn, but am now inspired to do it now. Thank you. Another comment by... Adriana said, quote, I'm sure Ralph would be happy to know that I finally stopped procrastinating and divested from a big bank moving my accounts to a credit union. Thanks, Ralph. Thank you, Adriana, if more people did that. Kathleen Kiesler says to me, quote, thanks, Ralph. I'll be exploring Capitol Hill Citizen Association along with the OpenTheBooks.com and I'll stop procrastinating joining the community banking, financing co-ops. You aired a whole 7.30 and a half hours ago. That's a month ago, right, Ralph? End quote. Well, I'm glad you're exploring the Capitol Citizen Association, because judging by the response we got to launching that group, a lot of people procrastinated. Just on the uh, subject of procrastination, Ralph, you know, of course, I'm still on the picket lines for the Writers Guild and I'd like to take every opportunity to remind people that we are still on strike. It's been about 135 days. But the thought occurred to me that what these companies don't realize is writers, most writers don't like to write because it's hard. And you, Ralph, you know, know what it's like to face the blank page and... So for us, having us march around and and kind of socialize, it's kind of guilt-free procrastination. That's where our power lies. That's something that they don't understand. That's very interesting. (laughs) Yes. Well, I remember the SAC-AFTRA union, and I'm on strike, and I think they should think of reaching more people than they're reaching right now. It's not enough just to have placards saying on strike with a slogan or two. You gotta go after the big banks, you gotta go after Apple, Microsoft, others, Sony, who've got big investments in Hollywood, put the heat on them. And that will reach a lot more people. Well, that's actually what they've been doing is they are talking to all those Wall Street investors. That is the strategy from leadership. We don't get all the details of that, but those discussions are going on. And what the problem seems to be now is that the companies are having a hard time agreeing with each other because you've got the legacy companies who have one business model and the tech companies who have a different business model. And it's very hard for them to come to an agreement because they have different priorities. They can hold out longer. 
the legacy companies, this is a possible opportunity to break them off, the legacy companies from the tech companies and just deal with them separately. But that's kind of what we're waiting on. It's kind of in their court and they really can't get their negotiations with each other together to agree on because according to their alliance, they have to be unanimous. And there's such disparate companies, it's hard for them to come to an agreement. Are any uh, scabs yet? Drew Barrymore. Uh, well, yeah, Drew. Uh, they're they're we're picking the shows. The, the View got away with scabbing in a way. Yeah, except they're starting to pick at them. They're starting to pick at another show called The Talk. Now, Ralph, these are uh, daytime talk shows um, that they claim don't really have writers. Uh, they kind of do, but it's still um, something that. Uh, we're frowning on and uh, yeah drew barrymore has a talk show that is uh trying to get around that too but there has been unprecedented solidarity are there laws does taft hartley forbid boycotts unions calling to boycott certain companies yeah it's called the secondary boycott yeah there's another terrible aspect of uh Taft-Hartley. It knocked out horizontal union collaboration. It would be against the law for the union to say, cancel your subscriptions to Hulu and Netflix. Well, it depends on how far they can go. Some of it is just free speech and it's protected. But if they try to muscle it in any economic sense, then they would bump into Taft-Hartley. That's interesting. I had a question on a different topic. I don't know if, if we want to discuss it. Go ahead. There have been rumblings in the press about Republicans starting impeachment proceedings against President Biden. And my first instinct when I read it was like, oh, come on, like, can we just can we live? And then I thought about it for a second. I thought, well, what would it be like if our government had a more robust opposition kind of like in the UK where you have, you know, the prime minister shifts so frequently I'm curious if you think that there's anything to that or if our government just isn't built for that and it would just end up bogging us down and we'd never get anything done. Or would it kind of make a more robust opposition possible? Well, in in a parliamentary system, they have a no confidence vote. And if there's a no confidence vote, the government falls and they got to have a new prime minister and new ministers. So they have a very sane way to do that. In our country, it's the neutron bomb. You know, it's impeachment. And it's very rarely used, and it's, it's being used more in recent years for obvious reasons. And uh, this is a move by McCarthy because he wants to save his job because it's demanded by about 25 crazies, the Freedom Caucus, who are controlling him on the budget and many other issues. If he's smart, he's given them what they want. He's developed a panel, what he calls a panel, to look into impeachment. He'll he'll just deep six it if he's smart. If he isn't, it may backfire on him the way it did on the Clinton impeachment, backfire against the Republicans. Do you think we'd benefit at all from justices, too, having a little less job security? Do you think maybe they're a little too too comfortable? They know they're guaranteed their four years unless... You know, they lose. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, the job security leads to autocracy. That's why the parliamentary system gets things done more. I mean, the reason why there's so many more social safety nets in Europe is the parliamentary system. We have a filibuster 
winner-take-all crazy gridlock system. And so when we finally get, say, 2009, the Democrats have a major good majority in the House and Senate, they still can't get anything done because there's so many ways to block the process, not only the filibuster. Ralph, with the Constitution, is there a way, if we had a third party and a fourth party, couldn't we not become a parliamentary system, but resemble a parliamentary system if there were more parties? Our system can install proportional representation. Like in Germany, if you get 5% or more of the vote, you get 5% or more of the members of parliament. If you get under five, you get nothing. That's the marker. In our country, you can get 49.9% of the vote and still lose everything. That's one, one reason why we have such a rigid system and such low voter turnout. Because, you know, in Western Europe, they encourage voter turnout. You, you can get a party. It's not going to get 40% of the vote. But if we get 7% of the vote, it gets representation in parliament. We're really tied in knots by the founding fathers' structure. And they never expected it to be cast in stone either. They were overly cautious. They were very worried about majority tyranny. So they installed minority tyranny. Yeah, it seems like there's an historical irony in that the founders crafted this constitution on the ideas of the European Enlightenment, while Europe was a series of monarchies. And then after World War II, Europe and being rebuilt, created these parliamentary systems that were an improvement on our system. And we have a hard time getting things done because ours is just, like you say, set in stone. Well, it's getting omnicidal. It's not just delays. It's really getting omnicidal. Look look how we're paralyzed on climate, on pandemic. Name a major problem we're addressing. And when you start to address it, you get a, a pushback, like what GOP is doing on Biden's legislation. And nobody dares talk about rehauling the whole system because they think it's totally pie in the sky. People will laugh at you. It wasn't it Jefferson who said that there should be a revolution about every 20 years? Something yeah. like that? Yeah. I think manifest destiny is what screwed us over. That we, I'm being serious, that we, this idea that we had to colonize the entire continent and start bringing in territories as states. I mean, North Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, they should be colonies. They shouldn't be states. I I mean that. We should have left them as territories. Well, they got two senators like California and New York. (laughs) They're not equal to us. No. The interesting thing is nobody in Congress is suggesting changing the system systemically, and nobody out there is. I mean, none of the third parties even have that in their plank. I never had it in a client. People would laugh at you. They, they have a fatalistic or a atavistic attitude, depending on the person. Atavistic meaning don't touch the founding fathers. Right. And, and fatalistic saying, are you kidding? They can't even get health care through. They're going to change the Constitution. It's, it's harder to change our Constitution than any Constitution in the world. Well, Ralph, counter- and, you know, on paper. I brought it up and no one laughed. It sparked a conversation. So maybe people should bring it up. Yeah, you should. 
I want to thank our guest again, David Hemingway. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, featuring more stories from Francesco DeSantis, in case you haven't heard. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, you can get it for free. Go to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. And guess what, people? The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen. It's out now. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to capitolhillcitizen.com. And remember to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at ralphnaderradiohour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode. We read them all. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when our guests will be Toby Heaps, CEO and editor-in-chief of a special Canadian magazine, Corporate Nights. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. Those of you who are interested in the Capital Citizen and becoming one, just go to capitalcitizen.com and you'll see the guidelines on how you can join others in order to be a factor in the way Congress operates and get a copy of the Capitol Citizen newspaper itself, print only. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to The Wrap-Up, where we continue our conversation with David Hemingway. Before we get into what you're working on now, I want to give our listeners an idea of several books that you wrote, if you could just summarize. And one, the first one, was in 1975 on industry-wide voluntary product standards. Most people don't know that the government and international organizations have created a variety of standards for products called ISO standards. And in order just to engage in commercial exchange, corporations have adopted these standards and they have persisted and in many cases been upgraded. And since your book came out in 1975, can you tell us what the standards situation is now in the Department of Commerce and the international ISO and what needs to be done to make them more comprehensive with the new technologies that are coming on like AI? You know, Ralph, I actually I don't feel like I'm an expert anymore in that. I, I had to move on. There was so little written about voluntary standards. And I was I think I wrote the really the first book about the economics of voluntary standards, who writes the standards, why they're written in some areas than in others, how important they are. And I was always surprised that I had taken lots and lots of economics classes and I'd never even heard of these standards. And yet they played such an important role in marketing and in, and in trade and then in safety, because so many of these, when the government decided to write mandatory standards, like for building codes, or even, as you know, for automobile safety, they often just took the standards that had already been written by engineers. And typically those standards were written by engineers from big corporations. 
one of the things I really learned was that typically often who wanted the standards was not the industry itself, but the buyers. So the reason we ended up with standard steels that anyone could buy and then there'd be competition in terms of price was because the Society of Automotive Engineers decided to write the standards because the automobile companies wanted to understand what they were buying. They didn't want to buy by brand name in terms of steel. These standards really affect enormous commercial interchanges. I mean, there are standards for electrical circuits, for example, standards for brake fluids, so the uniform standards for brake fluids, and many other products. And it's amazing how the media has just ignored it completely. And we're talking about thousands of standards, some of them dealing with uniformity, like screw threads. You know, you don't want different companies building different kinds of screw threads. And most of them are voluntary. But although we have often criticized these standards as not being brought up to date or not strong enough, the reason why they are adopted in actual practice is because the companies couldn't engage in commerce without them. There'd be total chaos. Anyway, just a brief description of that. Someday we'll come back and and revisit it. Another one, a book that you came out with, is The Political Economy of Inspection. Most people talk about regulation in the terms of enforcement, investigators, prosecutors. You focused on the hundreds of thousands of health and safety inspectors, many of them employed by the government, like meat and poultry inspection, others employed by companies who want to inspect their suppliers' equipment that they buy from, supplier companies. And there are also assembly line inspectors. Can you give us a little bit of information on all that? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that is really important when government writes regulations are not only the regulations they write, and then how they are enforced in terms of do you have first instance sanctions or not when someone does something bad the first time do you punish them and how much and what should you put people in jail and so forth the other area which is really important is the monitoring are people doing what they're supposed to do and virtually in terms of if you look at the kennedy school at harvard or most of these public policy people don't look at the inspectors and what I tried to look at, I went on lots of different inspections and, and with the inspectors and tried to understand when they had the ability to do a good job and when they had the incentive to do a good job. And you really needed both for them to be able to do a good job of what they were doing. And so often they lacked either the ability to find the major violations or they had no little incentive to report on these violations. And so, for example, often inspectors were resident inspectors. They might be at the meat plant day after day with the same people, and their kids might go to the same schools as these other kids, or nuclear power plant inspectors. You want the nuclear power plants not to be in big cities. You want them to be off in the country someplace where not so many people are. And That's where the inspector lives. That's where the inspector's spouse lives. That's where the inspector's kids go with other kids. And it's very hard to expect that inspector, when they find major defaults, to say, oh, it's too bad. We're going to have to shut this plant down for six months. Because that would. And also, a lot of of these companies go over the heads of good inspectors to the Department of Agriculture to get them to interfere with meat and poultry inspections that these plants think are too rigorous or nuclear. Power plants go to the Nuclear Regulatory Agency, say this inspector's getting in our way, cool them off, 
or cool her off. And that's another big story that I've been trying to get the Washington Press Corps to focus on. And it goes on and on. Inspectors often have serious grievances by being interfered with by companies being inspected, going over their heads to the political organizations in Washington. And it's it's a not a good paying job always, and it's a very hard job because it's often very adversarial. You often p- people aren't that happy if you're a, a big plant and inspect the OSHA inspector comes. You'd rather not see the OSHA inspector. You'd rather not be inspected. You're not happy to see them. It's not like saying, "Oh, here's our good friend who's going to come and inspect us," because the inspector mostly just says something's wrong or something's not wrong. And so there's a whole lot of pressure on the inspector and the inspector wants to have a nice life and often just tries to the people who he's seeing day after day after day might make them happy rather than the consumer whom he never sees you know the inspectors that are sent overseas they have a special challenge as well for example many of our pharmaceuticals are produced in china and india so that they make more profit for the drug companies here in the u.s no antibiotics are manufactured anymore in the United States. And the Food and Drug Administration is supposed to be able to send inspectors over to inspect these laboratories. And these laboratories have learned to basically develop a system where they get early notice and they quickly try to clean up their act in the day or two before the inspector arrives. It's a very lonely job. And I thought our listeners would like to know about both your work on standards and inspectors so that it opens different windows to what is possible to improve for a more health and safe society. Now, one interesting book you wrote called While You Were Sleeping, Success Stories and Injury and Violence Prevention. That came out in 2009. You have over 30 heroes who've made the world safer. Can you talk about that? Sure. So this book was really written for the parents and significant others of my students who, and I was trying to explain what is public health, what do public health people really do, and trying to show the incredible successes that can be made. And so there are 64 documented successes about how the world has been made safer in terms of violence prevention and and in terms of unintentional injury prevention. And then since I'm a big fan of the advocates, because I feel like I'm mostly just a researcher, There were 36 heroes who virtually no one has heard of who have made the world safer, who fought and fought and fought to try to make the world somewhat safer, to try to not only make automobiles safer, but to try to reduce suicide, to try to do all these different things and and have been pretty successful. I think the the reason we have buyer safe cigarettes is because of advocates who pushed and pushed and pushed to try to reduce the problem caused by cigarettes and leading to fires in the home where people die. You go back to the spectacularly successful public sanitation movement in our country. You want to say a few words about that? So, I mean, I'm in public health and there's so many great successes. And one of the earliest ones was in terms of sanitation is trying to get basically the poop out of the cities uh, and try try to make it so you had good, safe water to drink and you weren't going to get diseases because of all the excrement which was lying around from horses and people and whatever. And what one of the things I thought was very interesting was that 
in all the successes, there were people fighting against this, fighting against what I think was clear progress. There are people who were saying, you know, don't take our poop away from our, this is our poop. We don't want it sent anyplace else. And that's often considered one of the early great success stories. And it's the reason people in the United States and in the world live so long now compared to 100 years ago is public health. It's partly because we're richer, but we spend some of our resources in improving the public health of the country. And it's not having to do with medical care per se, but it's things like vaccinations, which have really, really helped, and all sorts of things which people really don't have sort of any idea about that can be done. You know, there used to be a big problem with in certain areas with children getting scalded by hot water. And good advocates help reduce that problem, not by training every kid or training every adult, but by making sure the water wasn't quite hot enough to seriously burn children. And, you know, if you talk to American history majors and you say, oh, you studied American history, 19th century, 18th century. Yeah. Did you study what was on the streets of the cities then when the main form of transportation was the use of horses who relieved themselves all over the city? attracting all kinds of insects, horrible smells, public health hazards. And, you know, it's amazing what's left out of American history. I mean, that was cleaned up by one of the greatest success stories. Of course, the cars replaced the horses and they had their own emission yes. problems. But yes. they were beginning to clean up the streets before cars took on, right? Yes, that's exactly right. And unfortunately, what happened is the cars came onto the streets and they were sharing the streets for a while with the horses and the pedestrians and the kids playing. And then we allowed the cars to take over all the streets, basically. And now we're trying to claw back just a little. I I ride my bicycle to work every day. And there's now I'm a little bit safer because in some areas in Boston, there's designated bike lanes. And now here's Francesco DeSantis with the rest of In Case You Haven't Heard. On September 7th, General Motors submitted a proposal to the United Auto Workers in a near last-ditch attempt to stave off a strike from the newly re-energized union. In response, UAW President Sean Fain released the following statement, quote, After refusing to bargain in good faith for the past six weeks, Only after having federal labor board charges filed against them, GM has come to the table with an insulting proposal that doesn't come close to an equitable agreement for America's auto workers. GM either doesn't care or isn't listening when we say we need economic justice at GM by 11.59 p.m. on September 14th. The clock is ticking. Stop wasting our members' time. Tick-tock. Labor journalist Michael Sinato reports that last week, the NLRB ruled in favor of the United Mine Workers of America, blocking warrior Met Cole's attempt to stage decertification election at the Brookwood, Alabama facility. UMWA President Cecil E. Roberts is quoted saying the NLRB, quote, based its decision on a ruling that determined warrior Met Cole violated the law before the strike began, continue to violate the law today, and intend to keep violating it in the future, end quote. The UMWA strike against Warrior Met is the longest coal strike in Alabama history. The Intercept reports Representative Andy Ogles, a Republican of Tennessee, has introduced a new amendment to the NDAA, which would bar the Pentagon from providing assistance to Pakistan amid the, quote, ongoing crackdown by the military establishment and its civilian allies, end quote. 
Pakistan has been experiencing political turmoil since the ouster of popular President Imran Khan on dubious legal grounds. Pakistan is a major recipient of U.S. military assistance, and the Biden administration has resisted attempts to rein in the ruling regime since Khan was deposed. A new piece in Insider covers the clash of conservative and liberal populist senators J.D. Vance of Ohio and John Fetterman of Pennsylvania. The two have been collaborating on rail safety legislation following the East Palestine derailment, and we have covered the degeneration of this legislation on the show before. Now, Vance is turning his attention to banning mask mandates, which Fetterman calls, quote, silly performance art, end quote, which is taking time and attention away from the stalled rail safety bill. Finally, a cover story in The Nation chronicles the, quote, confessions of a McKinsey whistleblower, end quote. The author was assigned to the McKinsey team's advising ICE and the Rikers Island prison, and he lays out how he tried and failed to resist the brutal and insidious nature of these institutions from inside the firm. The story is worth reading in its entirety to see behind the curtain of a firm which tries to wrap itself in platitudes like, quote, change the world, improve lives. This has been In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when we welcome Toby Heaps, CEO and Editor-in-Chief of Corporate Nights magazine. Until next time. Stand up, stand up, you've been sitting with